Well, it's hard to believe that after five months, we're coming to the end of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5 this morning. And as I had mentioned back in the fall, uh, we're going to go through all three of the John letters. So 1 John, then we'll do 2 John and 3 John. And um, I trust that it's been an encouragement and help and blessing to you as the Spirit of God has spoken to you through his word. We'll look at the last four verses this morning. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Repeatedly throughout this letter, we have been hearing this phrase, born of God. And we have been being reassured over and over and over that those who are born of God are saved by God now and also kept for all of eternity. And so there's a sense that we are saved now, we've been saved We are being saved, and eventually we will be fully saved. What that means is we are positionally in Christ saved now from the penalty of sin. We are progressively being saved from the power of sin as we are sanctified in Christ and learn to walk in him according to the Holy Spirit. And there's a day coming in which we will be fully glorified we will be saved from the very presence of sin. And what a day that is going to be. And so we can say that the big idea of really this whole letter is also the big idea this morning, which is true Christians are born of God and kept safe and sound forever. We are kept safe and sound by God forever because our salvation does not depend upon us. Our salvation does not even depend upon our faith, but it depends on the object of our faith, that is Jesus Christ, and what he has already accomplished for us. So as we think more this morning about this this phrase, being born of God, uh, let's go back and just review a few times in which John uses that phrase. Let's go back to chapter 2. These are key statements that convey God's promise to those who are born again. 1 John 2, and notice verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In other words, an evidence of being born of God 
is a progressive growth in righteousness. That is, we don't stay the same. When a person comes to Christ, when a person gets saved, that's the beginning of a whole new life. We are new creatures in Christ. And so we will begin to grow in practical righteousness. Chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So again, notice that being born of God means that that we have the very life of God placed within us Peter would say it this way, we have been made partakers of the divine nature. That then leads to a new way of living, and we cannot keep on sinning. In other words, we cannot remain in a lifestyle of sin. We struggle with sin. We struggle with sin a lot. And that's why we have so many opportunities to be assured of the promise of God's forgiveness, even in this book that's been written to believers. But John is also making it clear that there will be a fundamental change in the posture of our heart toward sin at the moment of our conversion. When God puts the new nature within us, our relationship to sin changes And we no longer live in a continual lifestyle of sin. Chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Here, John's very clear that having the life of God within us also results in a love for God's people. This love comes from God. It doesn't come from ourselves. We don't crank ourselves up in order to love. But God, through the new birth, places within us his very life, the life of love that then works itself out in our relationships with one another. And this is evidence, John says, that we know God. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So here, John is saying that the experience of being born of God or being born again is a doctrinal experience. In other words, it's not just an experience that has no spiritual definition. It's not a spiritual experience that you get to define, that I get to define, but it revolves around Christ. It is our response to Jesus, who is the Christ, that determines whether or not we know God. We either have the Lord Jesus or we don't have the Lord Jesus which is what he says later on. You notice in verse 12, whoever has the Son has life, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So clearly, John is saying that to be born of God means that we have come into a relationship with God through 
the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Our relationship with God, fundamentally, is built upon the work of Christ, not our work. It's based upon the one who did the work that you and I could never have done for ourselves. Now, today's verses also refer to this being born of God. You notice in verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God. It's the final mention of this phrase here in the letter. And here we see in the passage this morning three key truths to those who have the life of God within them. Number one, Jesus saves us now and keeps us saved forever. This is an amazing truth. Um, There are some people who profess to be Christians who believe that Jesus saves them, but that it is now their responsibility to keep themselves saved. And evidence of the insecurity that that doctrine breeds is the fact that the emotions of the person often determine whether or not they think they're saved today or tomorrow. Scripture makes it very clear that true salvation cannot be lost because true salvation is built upon the work of Christ, not on our work. It's based upon the faithfulness of God, not based upon my faithfulness or your faithfulness. And we see that very clear in verse 18. Notice, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Again, this phrase that's been repeated quite a few times in this book, does not keep on sinning. John, through that phrase, is urging us to realize that there is a dramatic change that happens within us internally at the moment of conversion, which results in us becoming new creatures in Christ and then living differently than we did before. A true believer will not keep on sinning, will not remain in a lifestyle of sin and rebellion against God without receiving his discipline, which we looked at last week, and then responding to that discipline in humble repentance as God works in our hearts. But the one who claims to know God, the one who claims to be a Christian, and yet has really no evidence of any life change, is a pretender, not a possessor. A professor, but not a possessor. And that's the wake-up call that John is giving here in this letter because of how the, the churches in his day were being impacted by false doctrine. So new life from God, as John is saying, keeps us from a state of habitual sin. The new life within us, the new nature within us, prevents us from remaining the way we always were. Why? Because he who was born of God, who's that? 
that's the Son of God, he who was born of God protects him. So the Son of God, who this letter has also been about, remember, the false teachers who were saying that, that Jesus was not the Son of God, that Jesus was not the Christ, that the Son of God did not come in the flesh. Now John, in his final sentences, reminds these readers that the Son of God has come, and he is the one who protects us. And the evil one does not touch him. So our Savior who paid the price for our sins and rose from the grave three days later, now is seated at the right hand of the Father, and the book of Hebrews says he forever lives to make intercession for us. He who saved us is keeping us saved. Doesn't that bring great comfort to your soul? That this isn't dependent upon you? This is dependent upon Christ. He who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Perhaps there's no analogy in the Bible that is as comforting to us as the shepherd-sheep relationship that is explained in relation to us as believers. Turn back to the Gospel of John. John chapter 10, written by the same apostle. We have this wonderful promise from the Lord Jesus that coincides with what John is teaching us in his first letter. That is that Jesus saves us now and keeps us saved forever. Look at John 10 and verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Very significant statement there. Hang on to it. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Look at the assurance that Jesus gives to us. That those who are truly his sheep will hear his voice. Those who are truly saved will know the word of God and respond to the word of God. There will be something in, in, on their radar, their spiritual radar, whereby they will be able to detect the voice of Christ, the Savior, through the word of God. That will give them discernment. It will protect us from false teaching. But look at this assurance. I give them eternal life, verse 28. So Jesus says, I give eternal life to my sheep, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And if that isn't enough, then the Father who has given them to me 
they can't be snatched out of his hand either. You see the picture here? We are held safely in the hands of our Savior. Safely in the hands of our Savior. He is the good shepherd. We are his sheep. We hear his voice. We know his voice. And he protects us. And then the other picture is, so here we are being held in the hand of Christ, and now the hand of the Father is also encasing the hand of Jesus. And so we have this double protection. Actually, triple protection when you put it together with the book of Ephesians, which says that the Holy Spirit has sealed us, sealed us unto the day of redemption. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are involved in saving us are also involved in keeping us. Did you get that? The Father who planned salvation, the Son who paid for salvation, the Spirit who applies salvation, all three are also involved in preserving us, keeping us saved. That's incredible comfort and assurance. We know, John says, that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. We are protected by our Savior, and we are protected by the Father, and we are protected by the Spirit. We are secure in Christ. What a great truth that is. And John says the evil one does not touch him. Not even Satan is powerful enough to snatch us away from Christ. Not even Satan. In Christ we are safe and sound forever. Jesus assures his disciples in Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Security. And this is our greatest comfort in times of suffering. The Apostle Peter knew this, And following in the footsteps of Jesus, he comforted suffering believers with the promise of God's eternal protection. He says in 1 Peter 1, according to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again. It's God who caused us to be born again. How? Through the gospel. The Spirit of God empowers the gospel, causes us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Jesus saves you and he is keeping you saved and he also, according to scripture, is keeping our eternal home. For us, our inheritance is kept in heaven for us. Not by us, not by our spiritual performance, not how well we did this week, 
but on the perfect, finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross in his empty tomb and his right now, real-time ministry for us at the right hand of God. He's praying for us, even now. This is how secure we are. So the whole point here John is making is that Jesus not only saves us from our sin in the here and now, but he keeps us saved forever. There's a second truth for us this morning. Number two, Jesus gives us spiritual understanding and an eternal relationship. Verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's somewhat repetitious of verse 18. Covered the content already. Look at verse 20. And we know is another thing that we know. This is another thing that true Christians know. That the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. So the son of God has given us understanding, spiritual understanding, and this spiritual understanding doesn't need, doesn't result in us becoming more religious. It results in a living, breathing relationship with God. He's done this so that we may know him. Not that we may know about him. It's not enough to know about Jesus. We must know him in relationship so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true and his son, Jesus Christ. So in other words, there is this union with Christ that happens at the moment that we are saved. We are united with Christ forever, safe and sound forever. We are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. He is eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. So when we know Jesus, we then gain the eternal life that already belongs to him. Think again about the shepherd to sheep relationship that Jesus has with those who belong to him. In the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, where we were before, but a little earlier in the chapter, listen to these words from Jesus. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, flees the sheep, and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus then says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Relationship. I know my own. 
Jesus says, I know who, who really belongs to me. I know those who are mine, and they know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Isn't it incredible that Jesus likens the relationship that we have with him to the relationship that he has with the Father? We know him, and he knows us. So those who know Christ are held safely in his all-powerful, everlasting arms. The good shepherd takes care of his sheep. The song, The King of Love, captures this comforting truth so beautifully. The king of love my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. Lost and foolish, off I strayed, but yet in love he sought me, and on his shoulder gently laid, and home rejoicing brought me. Never failing, ruler of my heart, everlasting, lover of my soul. On the mountain high or in the valley low, the king of love, my shepherd, is. Our shepherd, who cares for us and protects us, is also our king, the one and only king who is worthy of all of our worship and devotion. And that's our third key truth this morning. Jesus demands from us singular worship and devotion. Look at verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, what's an idol? An idol is anything that steals worship away from God. God created us to glorify and worship him forever. And he placed within us a desire for that worship. So before sin entered the world, that desire drove Adam and Eve to God in singular worship and singular devotion. So in the Garden of Eden, the affections of mankind were singularly devoted to God. But now we are fallen. We are broken. We're under the curse of sin. And so we, we have a divided affection, so to speak. The affection that God put within us, that desire to worship him and and singularly be devoted to him is constantly challenged by our sin nature. So John says, keep yourselves from idols. John is restating what Jesus has already taught us, and that is that you cannot serve two masters. The real estate of the human heart was only designed to hold one throne, not two thrones, not three thrones, one throne. 
And so God is wanting from us singular worship, singular devotion. Well, how is this possible? How is it possible to obey, verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols? It's only possible with the new nature. It's only possible by being born of God. It's only possible by having the very life of God within you by virtue of the new birth. Those who are born of God are able to keep themselves from idols. So God wants our singular worship, our singular devotion. He doesn't want anything that competes with him as ultimate king, as ultimate Lord, as the one that we live for, the one that we worship, the one that we serve. So part of growing in Christ involves this constant vigilance in our hearts to to put to death our idols and to properly worship Christ alone. Look back with me at at, uh, Psalm 115. Psalm 115 is one of those um, almost comical psalms um, in the sense of how the writer compares um, idols with the one true God. And now, when, when we read through this, I want you to think beyond idols that are just gold statues uh, that people bow down and kiss the feet of or, or something like that. But think of it more broadly as anything that competes for your heart's affection. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. That's interesting. You'll become like what you worship. That's what the psalmist is saying. You will become like what you worship. What you worship is what you trust. What you worship is what you get your personal security from. That's an idol. Makes you feel safe and sound. Oh, Israel, verse 9, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. What's the contrast? The contrast is, do you want to spend your life worshiping a dead God? Or do you want to worship the one true and living God. 
Do you want to give your heart's affection to someone who is inferior to the Lord? Trust in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Trust in the Lord. He is the one who alone can keep us safe and sound. And so when we find our hearts being drawn to other things, earthly things, people perhaps, relationships, if if that's what we find our heart drawn to for the security that our heart is craving, then we know that that's a competing affection. Infection, too. A competing affection. And we confess it to the Lord. And we should confess it to the Lord as an idol, as something that competes for the loyalty, the devotion, the worship of our heart. Because what the psalmist is saying is simply this. The opposite of idolatry is wholehearted trust in the Lord. That's the opposite. And there's a lot that threatens us in our life, right? I mean, every week there's something that threatens our sense of safety, our sense of security, our sense of calm. But we have promises from God, and these promises of God are anchors for our soul for the purpose of persevering in faith, persevering in love. And so John's point is this. If you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, if you have a living, breathing relationship with him because you have been born of God, then you can rest assured that no matter what threatens your sense of peace and security and safety, that he who saves you is also the one who is keeping you saved. What a great promise that is. Father, thank you for these reassuring truths, these promises, Lord. We've spent many months in this little letter of 1 John, but it has fed us so well. It has filled our souls with the food that we need, the bread that Jesus said we must live by, that we cannot live on bread alone, but we do live, we can live, we only can live spiritually by feeding on the bread of your word. And so thank you, Lord, for how you have fed us through this letter of 1 John. Thank you for these closing promises that really are repetitious of what we've been seeing throughout the letter, that salvation is a gift from you, coming to us through the gospel, through the work of Jesus Christ, applied to our heart, by the Holy Spirit who then causes us to be born of God. And you then plant the new nature within us and you begin a work of transformation causing us to grow in obedience and holiness and love. So God, we pray for discernment even this very week. 
Lord, as your spirit works in our hearts, would you expose to each of us our idols, those things which we run to for safety and security instead of to you? Those things which compete with our heart's affections? Cause us, Lord, to love Christ supremely more than anything that this world has to offer. And Lord, drive us back to your word continually for the assurance that we need that we might grow in our faith and become more like Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.